6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, entitled, The Allegorical Views. The classical type is the Akidah, the offer, Abram's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. And a whole, you can spend a whole study time exploring the treasures that are tucked away in Genesis 22. And we'll look at one of those next time in another way. But Jonah and the fish. We all know the story of Jonah. But Jesus himself points out it was a type, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus himself ties that, shows that that was a type of what's coming. Joseph is a type of Christ. Uh, R.W. Pink actually lists a hundred details of how Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50 is an anticipation of aspects of the coming Messiah. And uh, the one that we really encounter here in Song of Songs, it's pretty obvious, but I needed to put it in the list, of course, is the ancient Jewish marriage, which is portrayed in the song, but also has allegorical implications, both in terms of our behavior, but also in terms of our eschatology. The Jewish marriage five ancient steps in the, uh, the Jewish marriage. The betrothal, when the arrangement for the marriage was first contracted. The wedding profession accomplished when the groom went to the house of the bride to fetch her or else send a wedding party for that effect as it was shown in the song. And then there's the wedding ceremony itself where the two are recognized husband and wife in a legal sense. And then there's the wedding feast or banquet which follows the wedding ceremony and the wedding night where the marriage couple become one. Uh, through the first sexual union. Those are the well-defined steps in the Jewish marriage. And we saw in the Song of Songs, of course, the wedding procession in the third idol, the sixth reflection, where he, Solomon sent the wedding party to fetch her and so forth. And then the wedding night, which was in the next reflection, the seventh reflection in the same idol, which included the consummation, the centerpiece of the song, literally centerpiece, 111 lines before it, 111 lines behind it. And interestingly enough, all through another lesson we get out of it, the man always initiates and the woman responds. We see that leadership role, that initiating role, clearly portrayed in the first chapter, but also in the fourth chapter at the consummation, all the way through. Now there, of course, in addition to our personal parallels here, it's not hard to visualize the eschatological, end time kind of parallels here. In the betrothal, of course, we have the commitment in the separation, that's a time of preparation while, while the bridegroom is preparing the place for them to go, uh, she is preparing herself. Then there's the gathering of the bride, what we call the harpazo, if you will, the, the snatching up. And uh, then the wedding itself in the father's house, as distinct from the wedding feast, which is in the kingdom. And so all that is laid out, in effect, at the song in a broader, broad-stroke sense. Well, so much for the rhetorical device discussion. Before we go on, I think it'll be useful to get a little tutorial background on hermeneutics from a Hebrew point of view. 
hermeneutics, the study of the, uh, uh, the theories of interpretation. Most of us are familiar with various hermeneutics. We take a very high hermeneutic. We take the Bible very literally. But the Hebrew perspective from hermeneutics is a little different than the Gentiles. And uh, all through Hebrew literature, we are uh, confronted with the parallelism of ideas. Sometimes they're synonymous, sometimes they're antithetical, sometimes they're synthetical. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, synonymous parallelism, that's when a second clause re restates what was given in the first clause. Example in Proverbs 19. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. There's parallelism which are reinforcing. Same thing. There's antithetical parallelism. A truth which is stated in the first clause is made stronger in the second clause by contrast with its opposite, if you will. The light of the righteous rejoiceth, but the lamp of the wicked shall be put out. Proverbs 13. Now I'm emphasizing these because we're, we've spent our time the last several sessions reading Solomon's opera. We need to understand Solomon's literary heritage here because we're going to learn some surprising things by examining some of his remarks in another of his collections, namely the book of Proverbs. We have this third synthetic parallelism. That's where the second clause develops the thought of the first. The terror of the king is as a roaring of a lion. He that provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own life. That explains that the first states the fact and the second states the, re the implications of that. So that's another form of Hebrew parallelism. But the parallelism is a typical Hebrew way of containing a thought. There's something else we should be conscious of as we start studying, our, uh, studying the Bible. Most of us, being Gentiles, have a Gentile model or Western model of prophecy. We visualize prophecy as a prediction and its fulfillment. And that's, we have lists of those. There's 300 of those, apparently, of his first coming and so on. The Hebrew mind works a little differently. That prediction than the fulfillment is a Western model. The Hebrew model is a little different. Hebrew model prophecy is a pattern. The idea of types is all through Hebrew literature. In fact, so much so that most of the prophecies in the Old Testament are really patterns of the Messiah that are exactly parallel to the patterns of the nation. That's why in Isaiah 53 and places which are clearly all about the Messiah, the Jewish mind regards that as just about the nation. They put those, the two are parallel in some very, very surprising ways. And that's what we speak of typology, if you will, study of those types. Now, there's another thing in Hebrew hermeneutics we should be aware of. They have four different levels of meaning. The first level of meaning they call the Peshat. That's the literal or direct meaning. And that's the primary meaning that was in our minds as we went through the first uh, three sessions here, going through the Song of Songs. The Peshat level, the direct level. Okay. A second level, which they call the Remez level, that's the allegorical significance. That's what we're going to explore a little bit in this session. And that's a hint of something deeper. A remez can be very global. It can also be very, very pithy, very narrow, very denotative. But that's a remez, a hint of something deeper. A third level, what they call the derash, is what we would call the homiletic or practical application. And uh, it can have a literal meaning. It can also have a symbolic meaning. But what really counts for us in our lives is what's the practical application? How do I use that in my walk, for an example? That's what the Hebrew would call the derash level, 
or what we might call the homiletical or practical level. Now, in, uh, uh, in Hebrew, they have even a fourth level that we don't normally emphasize in, in uh, our Christian uh, perspectives, and that's what they call the sod, and uh, that's the mystical or very hidden meaning, a meaning that's actually hidden, literally. And so, um, so these are the four levels of Hebrew hermeneutics, the Peshat, the Remez, the Darash, and the sod. And uh, uh, we would have three of those four. We'd put them in different order, probably. We'd put, we'd put the Peshat first and the Darash second, and then Remez in, in, in level of mysticism, so to speak. But this is the way they order it. And the reason they do it is it has, there's a mnemonic they use. The P-R-D-S are the four levels. Peshat, Remez, Darash, Sod. P-R-D-S in Hebrew, if you, if you pronounce, if you imply certain vowels, it can either mean garden or paradise, depending on whether you look at the Hebrew or the Persian equivalent. And so Pardis is their mnemonic for remembering these four levels. But it also gives us a connection that we're going to run into this in the Song of Solomon, where they speak of the garden as equivalent to paradise together. And that's a hermeneutical allusion that we'll take a look at when we get there. And so in chapter 4, verse 13, just before the consummation, thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor, and speknard. The word orchard there is pardis. And that's a, a, that's a word close to paradise. It's also the mnemonic they use for hermeneutics. So that's a... That's a uh, uh, flag, an uh, attention getter, if you will. Something else we looked at, but just to remind you of it, we took a very subtle example of hermeneutics from their very alphabet, going at hermeneutics from a microcosmic point of view. We took the word ahab, which consists of three letters. The aleph, which means first, leader, or strength. And we have the last word, the, the last letter is bet, house. And if you put an aleph and a bet uh, together, you have uh, aleph and a bet means the leader of the house. In other words, the, even the very alphabet they use carries meaning, not just phonetics, but meaning. And uh, if you take a hey, a breath, the spirit, and put it right in the middle of the aleph and the bet, you end up having the word ahab, which is the essence then of the father, which means, of course, that's their word for love because love is the essence of the Father. Here's one of the most profound truths in the Bible contained in the actual alphabet structure. And all, uh, virtually all Hebrew words are consist of a three-letter root. And if you understand the meaning of those three letters, you can, you can uh, read an amazing amount of Hebrew, not, not, not going much further. Well, so much for a little bit of hermeneutics. I want to give you some insights also into Solomon the literary heritage that produced uh, Solomon's uh, song, uh, his opera here. And so he was a collector of dark sayings. What is all that about? You need to know, remember that Solomon had a number of identities. Solomon was not his real name. Solomon was his royal title. And Shlomo was his royal name. When he was born, Nathan actually named him Yedidiah. And that was, the, that was his birth. That was the name at birth. But Solomon was his, his royal name. Bathsheba had a private name for him, apparently. And she called him Lemuel. It's one of those private uh, things that only in the sanctity of the, of the uh, home would he, she use that with him. And, uh, uh, and she has a whole, there's a whole chapter written by her to him that expresses concern about his 
tendency towards womanizing that she apparently spotted at a very early age. And uh, now he himself calls himself the Koholeth, the preacher. That's the title he uses when he writes his book called Ecclesiastes. It's the, he, he calls himself the preacher, the Koholeth. And there's another title that most people are not aware of, and that's the Agur, the collector, because he had a hobby of collecting riddles, or what they called dark sayings. I want to get into this a little bit, it's important. So, see, Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs, was regarded as the wisest person in his day, 1 Kings 4, but we know God is actually the author of all scriptures, so if there's a value in Proverbs, it's because it's in God's word, not because it's from Solomon. So the book of Proverbs is quoted all through the New Testament. I won't go through each one of these, but it's interesting to discover how often the New Testament passages take for granted the idioms from the book of Proverbs. So the whole concept of wisdom, the traditional definition of wisdom is the ability to use knowledge in the right way. But the biblical definition of wisdom is, they speak of that as the wisdom of this world. Divine wisdom is from above. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God all through the scripture. The word in the Hebrew is chokmah, and it, is, it occurs 45 times just in the book of Proverbs. What does it really mean? Being knowledgeable, experienced, efficient in their areas of expertise. That's a denotative way. Wisdom in Proverbs includes practical sagacity, mental acumen, and functional skill. But it also includes moral, upright living, uh, which stems from the right relationship to the Lord. And so... Proverbs emphasizes, and you find this echoed all through the scriptures, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. And that's a trembling fear. That's a really, that's more than just a reverential awe, as sometimes said. It's much more than that. There's 18 Hebrew words that underscore this very thought, different words. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that makes the Hebrew concept of wisdom absolutely unique. You find many references to that. To be wise in the biblical sense, one must begin with a proper perception of the character of God. Many of us fail to really understand incidents in the Old Testament or parables in the New because we don't realize the real issue behind each of those is its implications for the character of God. And uh, so I share that with you as we go here. Wisdom is described as eternal in Proverbs 8. Wisdom is described as the creator of all things in Proverbs 8. And wisdom is described as the beloved of God. So the definitive passage there is Proverbs 8, which is devoted to, to really illuminating what we mean by wisdom here. And of course, to yield your life to Christ and to obey him is true wisdom, as we see all through the New Testament. Well, I want to explain, show you something in the first few verses of Proverbs 30 that most people miss because it's mistranslated. What is in a name is the question. And we're going to explore chapter 30, the first few verses of Proverbs. Let's background here. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom and folly are contrasted in the first nine chapters. Then we have the Proverbs of Solomon directly up through 10 through 24. Then we have a collection of them that were pulled together by the men of Hezekiah later, but they're attributed to Solomon, 25 to 20. And then we have this strange one in Proverbs 30 I want to look at. And the last one, of course, is written by Bathsheba, to Solomon, in effect. But the oracle of Agor has some surprises that most people miss. And in our exploration of this, I want to, to include this. 
How does it open up? The words of Agor, the son of Iake, even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ethiel, even unto Ethiel and Ukel. What does that mean? Makes no sense. I'll show you why. In fact, it gets worse. Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. Really? I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. That's the way it appears in your King James Version, unfortunately, because it's not translated at all in places or properly in others. Agur, Yake, Ethel, Ethel, and Ukal are Hebrew words that are not translated. There's no reason they couldn't be translated. Let's see what they really say. Agur comes from Agar to collect. It's a term meaning the collector. And it's probably a symbolical name for Solomon, just as Koaleth, the preacher, is a symbolic name that he drops for Ecclesiastes. And uh, Rashi and Jerome recognize the possibility of this, but they don't develop it. Solomon had several names that I pointed out before. Yedidiah is, is, or beloved by Jehovah, or Yahweh, I should say, uh, is the name which by Nathan when he was first born. And also Bathsheba apparently uses Lemuel as devoted to God as his private pen name. She's the only one that uses that. But he was the son of Yake. We know who Yake is, don't we? Let's go through this a little bit. And these other characters we'll look at here too. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of who? Who was Solomon? He was the son of David, okay? And uh, to, to get wisdom instruction and, and, and all those good things. The Solomon of David. The son of David. In Proverbs chapter 1, the wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise, and their dark sayings. This term, dark sayings, is actually a Hebrew word, meaning chidah, which is a word we would translate like a riddle or conundrum, an enigma. Something to be guessed is the idea. A perplexing saying or question. Some dark, obscure utterance is what the thing implies. Solomon was a collector of these. It says so in the first chapter of Proverbs, and it goes on even in the Psalms. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which you have heard and known to our fathers who told us. The word dark say, says the same word again. The parable, the enigma, if you will. He was a collection of enigmas. Now, he was the son of Yaki, apparently. That's a term which means obedient or pious, the pious one. Agor was the son of Yake, a mysterious, he was a mysterious collector of wise sayings and apparently inspired counsels of Ethel Yukal. I'll come to those two characters. The father Agor would be thus David, of course. So, even the prophecy of the man spake is the way it's translated, but unfortunately, if you really look at what these words mean, it really should be translated, the mighty oracle prophesied. And let's just take a look at what, uh, these two names. Ethel is a word that means God comes or arrives or is with me. It's almost a synonym of Emmanuel. We're all familiar with Emmanuel, God with us. Ethiel is God arrives. That's what it means. And uh, it's, it's almost equivalent to Emmanuel. Ukel is a verb which means to be consumed. That's strange. God arrives to be consumed. Let's take a look at what this actually, the Hebrew in this Proverbs 30 reads as follows. The words gathered of the wise son of the pious father, the prophecy of the mighty oracle, that, El, God, arrives to be consumed. Really? That's pretty weird. What on earth does that mean? God arrives to be consumed. The answer is in John 6. Verse 
Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh that I give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Wow. I have yet to find a commentator that picks up that this is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy by Solomon in Proverbs 30. It ties together. We shouldn't be surprised. As the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. Wow. So let's go back to this strange thing in Proverbs 30. There's more to it here. This next couple of verses are really messed up. The way it's in your English, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. I have learned wisdom. I have neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. Well, the word brutish there actually just means natural. Any man really refers to mankind. I'm as natural as mankind. And have not the understanding of Adam. Now, he's far more than that. The next verse is even worse, it says. It says, I, neither, I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy. The, the negative is not in the Hebrew. That was added by the translators because they couldn't figure it out any other way. There is no negative in the Hebrew in that sentence. What it really says is, I was not taught wisdom, and I have knowledge of the holies. See, the whole, the whole flavor of this is just the opposite is you, the impression you get in the English. But let's go on. He then makes a number of statements. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? That's a quote from Hosea 5.15. Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? That's a, virtually a quote from Psalm 135 verse 7. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? That's a quote from Psalm 104. This is obviously God is the answer to these questions. Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Psalm 72.8 uses that very phrase. And what is his name? Get this. And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? That's not only the Old Testament. It was used by Jesus to confuse his, his uh, antagonists. He, this is Psalm 110, the first verse. You may recall in Matthew 22, I love this passage, the, they, the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all had their crack at him. But while they were together, Jesus asked them, he asked them a question, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Wow. When you're dealing with lawyers, you better have your homework done. And boy, he sure did. He, he gave them a question they could not answer. He's just quoting Psalm 110. He says, then, if David call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able, to, I love this, no man was able to answer him for a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. He really put him to confusion. Here's what's interesting when you study the Hebrew. If you take that phrase in Psalm 110 and look at it in the Hebrew, the word there for Lord, Adonai, 
has a little yacht after it. That little yacht after it makes it possessive. How can David call him Lord, my Lord, if he is his son? And they couldn't unravel that. His whole argument with which he confused the legalists of that time was to leans on a little thing, that a yod, that you and I would mistake for a blemish on the paper. Remember Jesus said in, in, all the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, think not that I come to destroy the law of the prophets, I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I send you, till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now a yacht or a tittle are Hebraisms. A yacht is that little thing that you and I think would look, it looks like an apostrophe. A tittle is a little hook on some of the letters. This is, a, this is a Hebrew way of saying, not the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T shall pass until all be fulfilled. This is an important verse because to me it, call, it, it defines our hermeneutical challenge. To take the text literally. Not, not just every verse, every word, every letter, even the parts of the letter have relevance. And Jesus uses that to make his point. So let's, because Jesus, in, let's continue Proverbs 3 just to finish it up here. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Then there's another insight, then we'll finish it up here. Two things have I required of thee, deny me not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. This is an important clue to realize that the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God, made, has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. You're representing the king. You better be prepared to represent competently and faithfully. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.